The modern idea of stress began in 1936 on a rooftop in Montreal, Canada, with a handful of rats freezing inside cages in the winter wind. Canadian endocrinologist Hans Selye would subject the rats to freezing temperatures and then make them go hungry for long periods of time. After they died, he examined the physical effects and saw changes to their adrenal glands. And so the idea of stress and its potential costs to the body was born. It could be said Canadians invented stress. In the 1950s, American physiologist John Mason picked up on Celia's research and refined it. Mason conducted experiments in which two groups of monkeys were deprived of food for a short period of time. In group one, monkeys were alone. But in group two, those monkeys watched as a third group was given food. The second group of monkeys tested higher stress hormone levels. This proved stress wasn't just physical, it was psychological too. In an experiment in 2015, researchers measured the stress hormone levels of both experienced parachute jumpers and first-time jumpers. They found both experienced stress, but at different times. The experienced jumpers had higher levels of stress 24 hours before the jump, but they were perfectly calm at the key moment. The first-timers were calm the day before the jump, perhaps oblivious, but they had high stress levels just before jumping. So is all stress bad? Definitely not. There's a body of research showing adventure sports, for example, combat anxiety, depression, and PTSD. Today on Stories and Strategies, the growing body of evidence, the right kind of stress improves our cognitive function, improves memory, helps us produce chemicals that fight off illnesses, and enhance child development. My name is Doug Downs. My guest today is Sue Langley, founder and CEO of The Langley Group. Hello, Sue. Hi, Doug. Good to be here. I'm glad you could join us. You're joining us today from Byron Bay, just north of Sydney in Australia, where I'm sure you are enjoying spring and pretty soon summer. It is beautiful here today. It's 28 degrees. The sun is shining. Had my walk on the beach this morning, so all is well in the world. We've been to your area of the world. It is absolutely beautiful. Once once we're all traveling again, I, I recommend listeners go. Sue, you are the founder of the Langley Group and both creator and facilitator for the Diploma of Positive Psychology and Wellbeing, which was the first government-accredited vocational qualification in the field in Australia. You are a master trainer for the Meyer Solovi Caruso Emotional Intelligence Test, and there's an easier way to say that, right? It's called the Mesquite. The Mesquite. EQ test, emotional intelligence test, and the strengths profile. You hold a master's degree in the neuroscience of leadership, which I'm fascinated about. Your degree from Middlesex University. You've worked with many global organizations, including Salesforce, um, SAP, Schneider Electric, which is absolutely huge. And you're widely regarded as a global leader, leading advisor on the practical workplace application of emotional intelligence, positive psychology, and neuroscience. There is lots for us to talk about. Absolutely. Sue, as, as professional communicators, we live in and surrounded by stress. We're either stressed out 
we're working with leaders who are very stressed, coworkers who are very stressed, stakeholders on large projects where we're trying to get them to be okay with the project, who are very stressed about what we're doing. Uh, how would you characterize good stress versus bad stress? It's a really good question. And I think what's really funny is we've used the word stress to usually only mean bad. Um, and yet it was never set up that way. So originally there was distress, which was the more challenging element. Um, and then there was eustress, E-U stress, eustress. Eustress is good stress. And I think what's really interesting is that we've almost lost that. Whenever you hear the word stress now, it's always nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, people are using it in a negative way. And yet I'd love for people to think about when have they had good stress? Because I don't know about you, there are some times in my life that maybe at the time caused me a little of anxiety or et cetera, but actually that good stress, that pressure that gives you the kick up the bottom you need to stop yourself procrastinating or or even, you know, you're just about to step onto a roller coaster. Most of us would have experienced you stress then, as in good stress, you're choosing to get on the roller coaster, but you're definitely feeling anxious before you get on. So there's a key part. I'm empowered because I'm making a choice. I know that's got to be a key element. The other is, is it always short-term stress that could be good stress? Or is there actually long-term stress that is beneficial to me? Well, again, it depends on how we perceive it, I guess. There's a few a few things to your question there, which is interesting. Um, one is when we think about um, stress, stress is normal. It is natural. It is part of what we do. And absolutely, it's often short term in the moment. We have the stress response, if you like, where our sympathetic nervous system kicks into action to help us. And that can be really good. Um, sometimes when uh, it becomes more challenging is when it goes for longer term and it becomes chronic stress in a bad way, as in your body is flooded with adrenaline and cortisol on a day-to-day -day basis, your dopamine levels are dropping, you're not thinking clearly, you're experiencing a lot of anxiety, your breathing's are dodgy, your sympathetic nervous system is in overdrive, and you are potentially making some poor choices, uh, which can lead you onto a bit of a downward spiral that you're not able to think clearly enough to get yourself out of it. And that's usually the stress that people are talking about when they talk about stress and burnout and those sorts of things. A lot of the way our brain is made is, is if you accept the evolution of the brain and at some point we were uh, primates or, or primitive homo sapiens, it's not that we didn't live with forms of long-term stress. Surely we lived in tribes. We didn't know where the food was necessarily coming from, although we were probably agriculturally based. But we lived in constant fear of other tribes, of, of not having shelter, things like that. Long-term stress is not unique to modern humans. It's absolutely not unique. And I think the, the challenge for us is, is maybe we're just not learning the skills to handle it. Um, and again, probably COVID is a great example of this. Some people are really um, taking this extra pressure as an opportunity. I'm seeing some businesses and some individuals do some amazing things where they're turning stress into possibilities and opportunities and new ways of doing things and looking at things differently. Um, and there are other people who are absolutely in that panic mode of let's get back to where we were, we've got to get back to how we were. And I appreciate many people are in many different situations when stress occurs um, that you cannot generalize across people. 
Um, what I will say, though, is we have the tools to deal with them, uh, with stress when it comes up. And if we've got those tools in our toolkit, we know what the science tells us about how to manage this. And one of them that you mentioned earlier about choice, we know one of the basic psychological needs is autonomy. Well, there will be things you have no choice over. Um, I personally didn't have any choice over COVID suddenly spreading around the world. Um, uh, there was no choice for me about that. But there's an awful lot of autonomy about what I choose to do with it and whether I choose to wear my mask and whether I choose to go out, whether I choose to stick to the rules, etc. So I think when we know that one of the basic psychological needs is autonomy, if you can apply that to whatever stressful situation, whether it is a stressful situation that you have created or whether it's one you haven't created, autonomy is still a big tool you can play with. I was going to ask you how do leaders uh, implement good stress and bad stress for their staff, but you've partially answered that autonomy. How do I report as a leader with direct reports? How do I report upward if I'm giving my employees autonomy? How do I still meet uh, the KPIs and the return on investment, the ROI? Yeah, well, again, part of being a leader is sometimes you have to make pretty tough choices. Um, that's why you're in the role that you're in. Um, somebody has to make them. But you can still give people autonomy within a uh, scope. So it might be, here's the scope that you can play in, as in these are the, the end targets that we've all got to achieve. But how you do it or how you bring it about, you get some flexibility in. Um, and this is a really cool thing now with flexibility at work. It's giving people, in some regards, much more autonomy. And many people are loving that. And they're actually telling me they're more productive than they ever were. Um, because that sense of autonomy means that they can potentially choose to take breaks when they want to and spend time with their family or do what they need to do and still get the work done. And again, I think that's really important for leaders to bear in mind is um, there's this element of trust and connection and those sorts of things. And again, we know human connection is another basic psychological need. We need to be connected and belong, etc. And again, we know another human being can calm down stress in one human being. So if I am feeling stressed and anxious and you just simply touch my hand, touch my arm, give me some reassuring words, that may be enough to start to calm me down. But it's the same for a leader. If you think about if you can build a really good relationship with members of your team, when you do have to take autonomy away and put them in stressful situations, they're much more likely to forgive you. But also you'll have more trust in them that when things do get tough, you'll actually work as a team as opposed to you feeling like you've got to tell them what to do and then everything goes. Here we are getting close to the holidays um, in this bizarre year. What, what does stress look like for the average person um, heading into the holidays? Oh, what a great question. And I have to admit, Doug, I am not very good at talking about the average person. <laughs> My husband used to say to me, um, oh, maybe we could just be do what normal people do. And I'm like, what do normal people do? Because if normal people sit and binge watch Netflix all weekend, I don't want to do that. <laughs> um, so I think um, to say what the average person does is a little bit more challenging. I think one of the things that is challenging is we know um, there'll be concerns about job, which means there's concerns about money, which means there's concerns about the economy in general. And again, for me, I like to come back to what I've learned from the whole science of positive psychology is many people get stressed about sometimes 
the wrong things and I, I I'm doing little bunny ears here quotation marks because um I don't want people to think it's black and white but sometimes we get so caught up and we create stress for ourselves because we've got to do the perfect presence and we've got to give the perfect thing and we've got to buy this and how are we going to do it when we've got no money and yet nine times out of ten what's really important is human connection and again that doesn't matter whether you can do it face to face that's nice but I don't know about you, I found some really cool ways of connecting with my family virtually during this that I'm having huge amounts of fun. On a Sunday night, we play Yahtzee or some other quiz and whatever you, and I'm having more fun than I did previously um, when I went to visit them twice a year. Back to the to, to why we, we think stress and we think bad. Why has stress, do you think, evolved into this very negative, negative word? Is it simply that the headlines are about stress is, is harmful to the body, uh, that stress decreases life expectancy? Has it, has it just earned some bad PR, so to speak? <laughs> Look, I think it has, but it's also based on how the brain is wired. We know that the brain has roughly five times more neurons dedicated to a threat response than a reward response, which means my brain is primed to go to the negative first. And yet there's some amazing research, um, particularly Alia Crum, whose work I really love, um, did some really simple studies where they followed people over time. And the question they asked people up front, so everybody who participated was asked a particular question up front or a statement. Which one of these do you agree with? Is stress harmful and should be avoided? Is stress helpful and should be embraced? And based on how people answered those questions, they were sort of categorized in group one or group two or whatever. And then they were followed over a 12-month period. What was really interesting is at the end of the 12 months, the people who saw stress as harmful, so were in that first one, said stress is harmful. They experienced more stressful events by their own admission. They experienced more things like um, accidents, illnesses, a higher mortality rate um, than the other group. And subsequent research has really looked at, well, depending on how you view stress will then depend on how you experience it. So if you view stress as helpful, you will probably engage in behaviours that means you're more likely to learn from a stressful event when it happens, and in which case you've got skills and strategies for the next time. You will lay down new memories about how to handle things. So potentially you will engage in behaviours that actually um, work for you as opposed to if you view stress as harmful, as soon as a small thing happens, you're like, oh, oh my goodness, this is stress, it's a precursor for burnout, what am I gonna do? And it's almost like in your mind, you make, we make it worse because we view it as harmful. Love that. And of course, the thing we do in corporate life and just in life in general, if we want to create uh, a decrease in stress or get away from stress, we go on vacation, right? A walkabout or on vacation. So just to create that perfect scenario, I can't help but think there'd be a beach, right? We'd have a beach, the water would be coming in. I can hear the uh, steel drums. What else, Sue? What's on our vacation here? What else? Would There's going to be a few birds in the trees. Oh, and the splash of a whale or a dolphin. Oh, that's that's beautiful. The problem is, <laughs> when I'm on vacation, uh, and I am not a workaholic, believe me, I swear, <laughs> after about a week, I'm so bored. 
And it's really interesting because, Doug, you're not the only one. I'm sure there's people agreeing with you on here. I would be the same. I remember the first time I did what, what is often known as a flop and drop holiday. So I went to Fiji for five days um, and I'd never done one of those before. I'd always done the sort of holiday where you zoom around Europe and you see all as many things as possible. Or you um, zip over to various places and you go to every museum and gallery you can get your hands on. Um, but uh, we went to Fiji and I have to admit by day three, I'm like, okay, I need to do something. And I started writing a book because I'm like, I can't sit here and do nothing. I've climbed up the top of the hill a few times. I've snorkeled in the bay, you know. <laughs> so you know, you kind of need something. And again, when you look at what we know about stress and performance, we actually know human beings need a certain amount of stress. Otherwise, to your point, we get bored, we get lethargic, and actually performance drops when we don't have enough pressure. Next week, we have one of your students who's uh, going to be our guest on, on Stories and Strategies. I want to come back to what the Langley Group does. In particular, you offer an online course in positive psychology, um, which Josephine Tight, one of your students, has taken, our guest next week. Tell me about this online course, if people are interested. Yeah, so we actually uh, developed the Diploma of Positive Psychology and Wellbeing 2013. It launched, and it was actually the first in the world. So at the time, the only other uh, qualification you could get in positive psych was the Masters at Penn Uni. Um, but we want to develop a vocational course as in you didn't have to have a degree or anything like that it wasn't you know 10,000 word thesis documents to, to sort of finish off um, but it was real it was things that people could bring to life and I've been in this space a long time I'm lucky enough to be invited to speak at most of the major conferences and considered a leader in the field so I wanted to create something that was real for people and the diploma, uh, we've had well over a thousand students now and it's all virtual, so it's all now online. And when we say online, it's actually live because we don't believe in just giving you an e-learning and then here's your piece of paper, well done. It's actually live learning once a week or once a fortnight. You come on, you do assessments. It's a proper qualification. You will be expected to work for your qualification. But the thing that I love about it, and Josephine is a perfect example, is what people go and do with it. Um, Josephine has done amazing stuff in her community um, with their aged care, with carers, etc. And, and I've been working with her on some of those sorts of things. But we've had many of our students who've brought it to life in their not-for-profit, in their organization. Um, we've had corporates that have been transformed because a couple of diploma students have gone in and really brought the positive psych stuff to life. Um, schools and educators. Um, all sorts of things like that. It's about how do we make it real? But also what's really important for me is it's having university level content and science back. There is nothing soft and fluffy about the diploma. Okay. What do they get from it? Why would they do it? So this is the interesting thing we often get asked is why do I need a qualification? And you don't need one. You could just do a three day, you know, Coursera course or, you know, 12 weeks or whatever you what we're finding is so many organizations for the very reason of what we're talking about, stress and burnout, are really coming to understand the importance of well-being and mental health. And if you want a role as a well-being consultant or a well-being coordinator in a school or a well-being educator or whatever it happens to be, if you want to be in this space, you should be qualified because I see so many people who have this massive desire to make a difference in the well-being space and a massive hole where their knowledge should be. I'm glad we got together, Sue. Thank you for your time today. Absolute pleasure, Doug. And it's been great sharing the space with you and everybody listening. Have a great Christmas in the heat. Um, I know what that's like, seeing all the, all the Santa Clauses, and it's 30-some-odd degrees Celsius, 80-some-odd degrees Fahrenheit outside. So en enjoy your summer.
Thanks, Doug. If you'd like to send a message to my guest, Sue Langley, or if you'd like to invite her to speak at your virtual event, you can reach Sue at sue at langleygroup.com.au. If you liked what you heard, we're hoping you choose to subscribe to Stories and Strategies and receive updated episodes automatically. We're also hoping that you choose to follow and rate this podcast on any directory you're listening on. And would you do us a favor? Recommend this podcast to one friend. If you have an idea for an episode or you just want to tell us something, send us a note at info at jgrcommunications.com. Thanks for listening.